Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. I became a Christian as a teenager. I came from a non-Christian background. Um, I didn't know much about faith. I kind of, I went to a Sunday school a little bit as a kid. I think we wanted to get into a primary school that was linked to a church. So I had kind of issues around maybe there was a whale that was quite important. And there was a giant and we should know something about the giant. Uh, But that was kind of the extent of my faith and knowledge before I became a Christian. But as a teenager, um, you get more independent and you can explore different things and you have friendship groups. And in one of my friendship groups was a slightly wacky, slightly crazy Christian. And what I mean by that is he was always joyful. Things would get tough and difficult, and he would bring a sense of joy. And I didn't quite understand it, because when tough things happen, I found them tough, as we all do. Um, And when bad things happened, I was sad and found that really difficult. And he had those feelings too. But underlying it all, he had a sense of joy and perspective, because he knew something I didn't know. He knew that whatever he was facing, God had already moved in that situation and was continuing to do so. And I found that quite attractive. I was interested in what that was and what that had to do. And so after several weeks, several months even, of him saying, you should come along to church, you should experience this, you should listen to this, I eventually buckled and I went. And I found it a little bit weird and very uncomfortable People were using words and language that I didn't understand. And they were saying things with such a sincerity and such a confidence that I couldn't actually place it in line with the way I felt about things. Even the things that I was quite confident in, I would never have the confidence to say, this is the only way to do it. This is the true path. This is something you can build your whole life upon. And you're doing a series at the moment called Foundations. I think last week you looked at the foundation that is scripture. Today we're going to look at the foundation that is grace. And that is what attracted me into faith as the first place. Seeing people with firm foundations who had confidence and knew who God was to them. But as a teenager, I was not particularly good at living out the Christian life, especially at first. I was one of those teenagers that wouldn't really talk much in school unless they noticed that the teacher had put up the wrong answer. Like, so I'd noticed that the teacher had made a little maths error or something like that, and that would be my moment to say something. And the rest of the time, I'd tune out, I wouldn't be paying attention, and I was just annoying, frankly. Annoying in my own world and uninterested in being there. And when I became a Christian, some of that changed. Immediately, there was some change. But actually... My nature was still to be annoying and still to look for mistakes and errors. And it was only through grace, which we're going to look at today, that change began to happen, that change began to occur. My nature was to go back to being that annoying person. But God, through his grace, time and time again, grew me, strengthened me and continues to do so. 
So this week we're looking at Ephesians 2. We're going to look at the first section of Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 8. Uh, sorry, verses 1 to 10. I'm giving you two bonus verses. Um, I'm going to read that out, but it, should, it may appear behind me, depending on how the text's doing. Brilliant. So it says this. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commanders of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everybody else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we were dead in our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and his kindness towards us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Jesus Christ. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for it. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so that none of us may boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so that we may do the good things he planned for us long ago. This series is aptly titled Foundations, and this is a cornerstone verse. Um, As I mentioned, when I became a Christian as a teenager, I was not actually that good at many things. At school, I'd always been a bit lazy, and I actually found it quite hard to read the Bible and get into it. But what I found is there were certain passages, certain verses that spoke to me, and that I kept coming back to time and time again. I found it hard to read whole books. I found it hard to read the whole Old Testament, the whole New Testament, but Ephesians 2 was a verse that I, well, a chapter that I read time and time again in my first year as a Christian. It became foundational for me because of a very simple truth. God is transforming us because of who he is. And when I was struggling with what it meant to be a Christian, I could turn to this verse and go, it is in God's hands because I have believed because of the grace that he has shown, I am saved. And later in time, it became easier to read scripture and it became something I loved to do. But in times when I found it difficult, it was useful to have these verses. And actually, a verse in, passage in Revelation that we read as we prayed before this service in Revelation 21 was another foundational one. So I want to encourage you, if you're a little bit one of those people that struggles to read the Bible, that struggles um, to commit to a whole book, find the verses to start with that impact you, that remind you of the truths that God wants you to know. Anyway, that's a little bit of an aside. Um, and our, we're going to kind of use a three-point structure to look at this sermon. Um, you might be used to it. It's kind of a quite traditional CCM way of doing things. We're going to see that our disobedience keeps us from God. We're going to see that God's grace alone saves us. And we're going to see that we're free to do good things because of his grace. The passage we're looking at opens in stark terms. It tells us that we are dead because of disobedience and sin. In simple terms, those words actually kind of mean the same thing. Sin is just turning away from the way that God has planned for us and the things he's taught us to do 
and making decisions in the way that verse 3 describes, following our passionate desires and inclinations. Basically, as humans, we are kind of built and desire to do the things that feel good now at the cost of the future and the cost of our relationship with God. And our disobedience as individuals, but also as humanity, has been the thing that has kept us from having that intimate relationship with God. The very first humans, Adam and Eve, were also the very first people who disobeyed God, who sinned. Their actions brought shame and pain and fear into the lives of humanity. When we think about our lives now, we actually see parallels to those very first human beings. In Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, we learn that God created a paradise for Adam and Eve to live in. With perfect weather, wonderful food, beautiful landscapes, animals, no fear, nothing that could go wrong. It was perfection. I don't know if you've ever dreamed of the perfect holiday. Um, You might be the sort of person that likes an active holiday. You want to go skiing and it always seems so exotic. Or you're the sort of person that wants to lie on a beach and just rest and enjoy and recuperate. Adam and Eve had this. They had the perfect holiday that doesn't quite exist. And not only did they have the perfect environment, but they had the perfect relationship with their living, loving father. He was there dwelling in the Garden of Eden with them. And all he does is he makes one request. He says, don't eat from this one tree. I've given you everything else, but this one tree is not good for you. It is not right for you. I think that sounds like quite an easy request to follow. We've got all the food in the world. We're having the best time. We have a beautiful relationship with God. And he just doesn't want us to do one thing. To me, that sounds like quite an easy, easy request. But humans don't look at easy requests and follow them. We seem to choose the harder path. Our passage today in verse 2 says, Just like the rest of the world, you obeyed the devil. It's a passage that's kind of revealing that we as people, as humans, are as sinful as those first humans who sinned. I want to read a little bit of the story of how sin entered the world because I think it helps us to understand how sin enters our life and the tools that, as the scripture puts, the devil uses to get us to disobey God. In Genesis 3 it reads, the serpent representing the devil, was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? The woman replies, of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the servant replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. This is the moment that sin enters the world for the first time. And the way it enters the world is actually really simple. The devil asks a question that introduces doubt. Doubt in the word of God doubt in the purposes of our heart, doubt in the situations that Adam and Eve were in. Suddenly, the perfect situation they were in had that seed of doubt saying, oh, what if it could be better? 
And we as humans are called to that. We find it instinctively in our character that there might be something better. And that's what led Adam and Eve to listen to the devil. They heard the voice of doubt. And once the devil asked that question, did God really say that? Are you sure that's what he meant? Are you sure he's telling you the truth? Well, then the serpent gets bolder and he makes a promise. He says, you'll be like God himself if you eat from this tree. He's appealing to a sense of vanity and pride that has just existed for the first time. And so the woman Eve and her partner Adam disobey and they eat the fruit. And in some ways, what the devil promises them comes exactly true. Before the devil speaks to them and gets them to eat the apple, they have no knowledge of death, of sin, of evil. And they eat the apple, this one restricted thing, and suddenly evil enters the world, enters their hearts, corrupts them. They aren't like God because God has no evil within him. But they do get to understand what the wrath of God, what the pain that God did not want them to have is. These two people who have had a perfect experience up until this point see their relationship with God break. Disobeying God is a sin and it introduces sin into the world, corrupting it for them and for us today. And that brings us to today because it's easy to think of Adam and Eve as something that happened so long ago or so abstract a story from our lives that it's not relevant. But you only have to walk down a high street, you only have to turn on the news, you only have to go outside, you only have to look at the problems in your life to see the same things that Adam and Eve brought into the world. Poverty, drug addiction, relationship breakdown, endless, endless conflict and war. In our lives, we see sickness and heartbreak, loneliness. We struggle to put food on the table. We might live in fear of unexpected expenses. We see relationships that we've invested into and people we care about have breakdown and suffering. And often, because of the way we've acted in certain situations. This was not the world that God created for us and wanted for us. It's the world our own desires our own perversions and corruptions has created. Not just from that first act, but from every act that has been corrupt and wrong that humans have done ever since that moment. Every decision to pursue something that was not of God has created the world that we live in today that is broken and hurting and corrupt. The good news is that is not where the story ends. That's not where our passage ends today. I'm really glad that I've got a little bit more for me to talk about. There is grace, and it's God's grace that saves us. Let's look again at the next part of our passage in Ephesians. It says, but God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. We've seen that we, humanity, us as individuals, have disobeyed God. And because of that, there is no place in heaven or no way to be forgiven of our sins through our own work. I think sometimes it can be a little bit sobering to think there's nothing you can do to achieve grace. And I think one thing I'd like to just point out is that God has set a perfection standard 
that we can't meet. He created a world that was so wonderful and so perfect, and we corrupted it. We didn't build it in the first place, and we can't bring it back. It has to be God that does something. And this section of the passage reveals that grace alone is the reason that Christians can be brought back into the presence and relationship with God through Christ. Our human wills, our works on earth, and the works of the other Christians and people around us actually contribute nothing to our relationship coming back to perfection in Christ. We are forgiven and declared righteous because of what Christ has done and not anything of our own doing. I think a question I ask myself a lot is, why did God choose to bring us back to him when we disobey, when we are sinful people by our nature? And we find that answer again in the story of Adam and Eve. The whole world, creation, all goodness that you can possibly imagine was created by God for us to enjoy. His plan from the beginning of time was to be with his people, to dwell with them, to be worshipped by them, to bless them, to experience them in the fullness that he created them to be, not to experience us in our weak and sinful state. He always wanted a relationship with his people. And so there must always be a way of coming back into relationship with God. He wouldn't put a plan into motion that he could not complete. These verses today tell us that we're given life when, we ra- when he raised Christ from the dead. Our sign of grace in our lives is not something that specifically happens to us, but happened to Jesus on the cross. As Paul writes in today's passage, the grace and faith that save us are not our own doing, but rather divine gifts. You might have heard the very famous verse from John 3:16, and it puts it this way: "For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life." That verse is the essence of what we mean by grace alone. God loved the world. God sent His Son so that we might have eternal life. The actions are on God's part. All we do is acknowledge and receive it. What is grace? Well, grace is undeserved love. Grace is love that forgives sins. Grace is an attitude that only God could have looking at the weakest of people and seeing life and seeing favour. It's not something in us and it's not given to us because of what we have done, but it is a gift and a quality of God and from God himself. God is grace. Grace is a sign of his love and his affection for us. It's the sign that sent him to give his son as a perfect sacrifice for our sin. Our passages in verse 8 and 9 make that point. For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. Our salvation is not only a gift of grace, but God has given us the gift to receive and acknowledge that grace. All of it is his. The standard in life to be like God is too high, too pure, too perfect for us to do. It is found only in the person of Jesus. He was the only one that could make a way. 
And unfortunately, that's why he had to die. And I think there's a question of, well, if we've received this grace, how do we respond to it? And I think this is a beautiful passage for answering that question at all. I think this passage reveals that God's grace is a gift that is to be seen in us and through us. Other people who do not know God's grace, other people who are of the world, get to experience it through us. And we can thank God for that. We can thank him for his son, Jesus. We can try our best to honour that, but we're going to fail sometimes. At home, I have a beautiful husky. He's eight years old. We adopted him last year. He's a massive beast of a dog, really. Um, But he's actually very well behaved, which is lovely when you adopt a dog. You're never quite sure how they're going to be, how they're going to respond. But he has, with every dog, he has tendencies, things he does that we don't like or enjoy. And when we first got him, his favourite thing would be to wait till we left a room, jump up on a table or a counter and steal whatever food or drink that we left him. And we worked really hard, we trained him, we put in the time, the effort, the love to change that behaviour. And mostly that's worked. He's got better and better and better. We can leave um, a drink on the side of Um, a cabinet and he won't go and get it we can put some food out as long as it's on a high surface that's all good now that took a lot of work but if we leave and we've left food on a table if we've left something tempting he's going to go for it we'll come home and we'll be annoyed we'll be annoyed because of something we've done that is his nature he is a dog he likes snacks he likes food we can put in all the world work we can to try and change that behaviour. We can get him to work as hard as he wants to train him and reward him. But if we leave a slice of cake on a table in front of his nose, he's going to eat the slice of cake. And I don't want to stretch this too far, but we can be a little bit like that as people, as humans. We experience the grace of God, the gifts of God, and they are good and they are true. But actually there's still something within us that sees the easy option, sees the thing we want, and sometimes goes for it. That doesn't mean you're not a Christian if you sometimes go and follow that impulse. Because I believe that actually accepting the gift of grace means that those impulses will be easier and easier to repent of and to turn away from. The life of a Christian of turning to God is not perfection straight away, but it's perfection found in the person of Jesus who you are being made to be more like. That is the gift of grace. You don't have to be perfect now to accept it. But in accepting it, there is a promise of perfection. And I think that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. I think it's a humbling thing. I think it's a wonderful thing. And I think it unlocks us to do the good things that this passage finishes with. The passage says, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. Every person sitting here today who has accepted Jesus is God's masterpiece. You are the Picasso in the gallery that he admires. You are the sculpture that blows people's minds when they see it. You are revealing something of God to those you encounter because we are made anew in Jesus Christ. That's hard to remember. It's hard to remember when we're struggling. Sometimes it's hard to remember when we're doing really well, 
because we start to think those are because of us. We're doing really well because we're working really hard. We're doing really well because we're extra sacrificial. We're doing really well because of what we've done. No, we're doing really well because God has done something. And in the struggling, when we struggle, God is still doing something. He's still moving and we are still his masterpiece. When you experience the creation of a new life in Christ Jesus, when you accept that grace, there is this unlocking that happens and you get to experience some things that people don't get to experience. You get to dwell in the presence of your heavenly father. You get the gift of the Holy Spirit within you moving and changing you and making you more like Jesus. You get to live on an earth that is broken knowing that it is not the end that it is not your final resting place, that there is something greater and better to come in an eternity with God. It's a gift of hope. It's a gift of freedom. And sometimes God will have given us additional gifts, spiritual gifts, which you can use to bless the church and those around you. I know people of remarkable faith who can see the good in situations that I cannot. Maybe he's called you to spread the gospel and give you a powerful gift to engage with cultures and people, it's all part of the grace of God. That not only has he saved you from your sin, redeemed you, but now he is lavishing gifts upon you, and he expects us to use them. The good things that he planned for us, the gift of grace that he gave us, is not just for us, but those around us. Corinthians puts it like this. So we are Christ's ambassadors, God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. We are sent into the world because of grace alone. We have received it, so we must give it. When we try and give it, it feels like it sometimes is us speaking into a void. But we're masterpieces. We're God's masterpiece. We've been created anew in Jesus. We're not speaking from our own strength, for our own desire, but because God has made us to do so. His grace for us is grace for other people. That they might see how we live, how we're transformed, how we speak and have the opportunity to come back to him if he has chosen us. God wants us to do good things because we have first had a good thing given to us. It's not always easy to do that. We saw Adam and Eve given everything imaginable, turning from God and disobeying. The devil loves to use his gift of doubt, well, tool of doubt, to push us away from the grace that we have set before us. And it's important to arm ourselves against that. I'm not going to dwell into this because this whole series is fantastic and foundational. But I know that James last week spoke about scripture and anchoring yourselves in scripture. I said at the beginning that Ephesians was foundational to my faith as an early Christian when I became a Christian. I found that having passages that I could go back to and rely on became bedrocks that when I was challenged, when I felt doubt, I could turn to them and be confident in who God was and his plans for me. That's something we can all do. We can find those passages, those words, whether it's an audio book or a piece of scripture that speaks to us and makes us remember who God is. We can turn to our friends who are fellow believers. We can ask them for help. We have tools because God has given us tools.